want to encourage us to do something. Imagine, imagine sitting down to write a letter to a group of friends that you haven't seen for a really long time. Now, these are people that stood by your side. These are people that you love. You have a lot of memories with these people. And this is, this is the type of letter that Philippians really is. And as Paul is writing uh, to this group of Jesus followers in the ancient city of Philippi, joy fills his heart as he remembers what they share together. And affection fills his prayers as he asks for their love to grow and overflow. What did they share that brought so much joy? And what did they need that only love could answer? Let's read together Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And we'll pause there. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we explore your holy word, that you would put your finger on areas of our lives, Lord, that that you want us... uh, to to work on, that you are working on. Uh, Lord, thank you for this good work that you've begun in us by your grace and and that you will complete. Thank you that, Lord, you care for us, that you love us through your word. Thank you that, Lord, you are able uh, and you are active and you're moving and speaking. And so we want to receive all that you have for us. So give us that kind of uh, disposition, Lord. Give us that kind of attitude and desire that, that we would receive all that you have for us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Three things as we walk through these 11 verses uh, that we'll see. First, who we are. Second, what we share. And third, what we need. Who we are. This is about identity in Christ Jesus. You can read all about the church of Philippi and its beginnings in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Philippi is and was and is located in northern Greece. It's the first place in Europe where the gospel broke through. And there's this beautiful story in Acts 16 of the good news about Jesus transforming the lives of individuals from every walk of life. And if you remember the story found in Acts 16, um, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke, who, who began this church, they, they went to this city and met a woman named Lydia, and she was a clothing merchant. And they met her by the riverside where many would gather to pray. 
They also met a demon-possessed girl who, who told uh, other people's fortunes and, and, would, and, and would earn money for her owners. But she was set free from that demon. And they met a jailer. Well, you, you might know the story, but after that girl was set free, it caused a, a real stir in the city. And uh, the demon-possessed girl was set free, and her, her owners were not at all happy. And it led to just a big stir, and eventually led to the arrest of Paul and Silas. And they were arrested, they were, their feet were in, in stocks, they were in the inner prison, and it was about the midnight hour when they didn't know what the next day held that they were singing hymns of praise to God. And the other, the other uh, prisoners and the jailer, the Roman uh, guard, heard what they were singing and what they were talking about. And in that moment, everything shook. There was an earthquake and the doors uh, swung open. And, and the Roman soldier, the jailer who was guarding them, thought that the prisoners had escaped and so he was about to kill himself, knowing that that would have been his end anyway, had the prisoners escaped. And Paul and Silas said, wait, stop. We haven't gone anywhere. Trembling, bewildered. I mean, that soldier just said, wait, how can I be saved? He had heard the message about Jesus. He had seen the miracles happening. He had seen their heart. They're singing in this midnight hour. That night, he was baptized. And that night, Paul and Silas were, were washed of their, their wounds that, that they had uh, uh, endured and, and experienced. That's the beginning of the church in Philippi. A clothing merchant, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer. Now, we know the Philippians held a special place in Paul's heart. I mean, they, they financially supported him when no one else did. He writes to the Corinthians about this. They gave out of their poverty towards um, the need of the church in Jerusalem. They sent individuals to care for Paul while he was in prison. In fact, we're going to meet a man named Epaphroditus later in this letter who brought gifts to Paul along with an update on how the church was doing. And this is 13 to 15 years after the church was formed in Acts 16. And so this shows the deep relationship that's still happening between Paul and the Philippians. Paul identifies he and Timothy from the start as servants. It's interesting. He, it literally means slaves, slaves of Christ Jesus, slaves of the anointed one, slaves of, of King Jesus. In other words, they're saying Jesus is the one in charge and we are his humble serv- at his humble service. We're his instruments. We're his servants. And what a privilege it is to be so. And, and then they, they address the Philippians this way. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Imagine if I wrote you a letter and I said, uh, to all the saints... In Christ Jesus, who are in St. Petersburg. Saints? He calls them saints. How, do you, how would you feel if you were called a saint? Well, that's what you are in Christ Jesus. It means holy. It means set apart. Called out, sent in. God's people have always been the set apart, consecrated, holy people of God. Now, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've looked to him as your rescuer, as your redeemer, then you are in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Your identity as saints is rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. In other words, you belong to him. Your life is found in Jesus. You stand in union with him. 
His death was yours. His life is yours. Your status and your acceptance is in Jesus, which means you are not what you've done. You are not what you are doing. And you are not what's been done to you. These things do not define you, at least not anymore. Now, we're tempted to find our identity in all kinds of things, aren't we? But your identity is not in what you do as a career or in what you own or in even what you do as you strive to live for God. Your, your identity is, it also isn't tarnished by what's been done to you. That's, that's important to hear again. Your identity isn't tarnished by what you've done in the past. You are accepted and you are loved and you are made holy and whole. You are complete in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul starts this way intentionally. One of the most important things for us as followers of Jesus to understand and to hold on to is our identity in Christ. If you're a new Christian, the most important thing for you to grasp from the start is who you are in Christ Jesus, your identity, your union with Christ, what it means for you now and forever. Because we are all going to be tempted to move away from this truth. We're all going to be tempted to try to find our identity in what we do or in the things we possess. We're going to be tempted to not believe what God says is true of us. And so Paul, he holds it high in this introduction. And isn't it easy just to kind of read this casually? Isn't it easy just to see this as just a simple introduction? But look what he's saying to all the saints. He's saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you belong to. Don't forget what you've become in Christ Jesus. And all this is because of grace. And he goes on in verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's this formal greeting that is just loaded with meaning. He's, again, he's putting front and center what is most important for the Philippians. Grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. This is unmerited. It's undeserved favor on your life. Grace. Grace. You've received it. Receive it again. Soak in it. Don't move away from this grace. And what grows out of this grace? Peace. This wholeness. This renewal. This reconciliation with the living God that you've experienced because of the grace that is found in Jesus. So what a greeting. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts by reminding them who they are. It's important for us to know who we are. Who are we? Is your identity rooted in Christ Jesus? It is if you've put your faith and your trust in him as your rescuer, your redeemer, if you've owned up to the fact that you have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God and you need his grace, then you by faith in Jesus, have been made new. And this is your identity now. Second, what we share. This is partnership in the gospel. As we read this, you can see the joy that fills Paul's heart, can't you? As he's remembering the Philippians. I imagine as he's writing this or dictating this, uh, a huge smile is just across his face. It's easy for me to relate to this as I think about you. Here we are, a church two and a half years old. I could share so many stories of God's grace at work through you, through us as a church community, through you individually, many of you individually. 
A lot of people I'm getting to know, and that's beautiful. That's a good thing. But I can truly, uh, just as, as you come to mind, individuals, when I think of local church St. Pete, I'm not thinking of just some big group of individuals. I'm thinking of people, individual people that make up this community that is local church St. Pete. And it brings joy to my heart. Many of you, I mean, you know, uh, Facebook and, uh, you know, other, Google and, and, and the photo app on our, can, on our phones, it, they, they remind us of things that have happened in the past, right? These memories that pop up. And they're doing this on purpose, right? I mean, they just want us to engage those apps. But it's working. And, and one recently popped up uh, on Facebook for me of, of my oldest son when he was four years old playing the drums, uh, this little drum kit, and I forwarded it to Mark, and Mark's probably thinking to himself, Mark's one of the pastors here, he's probably thinking, why is Darren sending this? You know why I'm sending it? Because it got me. It got me, and I wanted someone else to see my four-year-old playing the drums. Um, but this, this memory pops up, and, and it just fills my heart with gratitude and thankfulness. That's what's going on in Paul as he's thinking about the history that the Philippians share with him. They had adventures together. Acts 16 is proof of it. And they had a lot to celebrate. And look what he says in verse 5. This partnership that they have in the gospel. Partnership language communicates active involvement. The word was often used, this word partnership, was often used for a business partnership. So those involved would share in in doing the work and share in the financial responsibilities of the business. And it, it communicates team effort. The Greek word, you might be familiar with it, is koinonia. It's often translated fellowship. Here's the idea. Participation, ownership, communion. It's taking up the responsibility. It's sharing. The word sharing is important. A mutual support, it's friendship. In other words, he's telling the Philippians, we, we share in something so special. We have a partnership in the good news of Jesus. That's what it's rooted in. And, and the Philippians, again, they came from all these different walks of life, and, uh, and yet what did they share? What was their common bond? What brought them together was the gospel, the truth about, about God through his son. And isn't that what brings us together? Isn't that our common bond? And he's saying, listen, you're not consumers. You're disciples. You're not just a spectator. You're a participant. You don't see yourself as just a fan. You're family. Can that be said of us? Oh, I pray. I think it can be, and I want it to be said of us more and more, that we are not consumers, we are disciples. We are not spectators, but we are active participants in the the, the mission of the gospel here in St. Pete. And we're not simply fans, but we're family. When local church first started and we had our first membership meeting, we called membership partnership. And it was rooted in this word, We called it partnership for like a second. Um, But we changed it back to membership. But at the time, I was thinking, I just love what this communicates here in Philippians. This partnership, this sharing, this mutual responsibility. Membership at the time, it felt like to me like a, a gym membership. No, we're more than that. But anyway, we went back to membership, and we're okay with that. It's okay. We can change our minds about words like that. But the meaning remains. And and this leads Paul to confidently say something about the Philippians in verse 6. Look what he says so confidently. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, what a kind reminder. God began something in the Philippians. But hey, time out. It's not just the Philippians. God began something in you. It's a good work, a work of his grace. He began it in you, and he'll bring it to completion. God is faithful. And what Paul is saying is in spite of the sufferings that you're experiencing, and we'll, we'll get to that later in the letter, in the face of opposition, in, in the face of even some disunity that was going on uh, it, it within the Philippian church, we'll get to that too, he's saying, listen, God is going to finish what he started. And isn't that, isn't that nice to hear? I think we just need to hear that this morning. Like God is going to finish what he started because some, sometimes well, we can give up on ourselves. We know ourselves. We, just, we get tired. We get, we get worn out. We're like, really? We failed in this area again. But listen, don't give up on yourself. God hasn't given up on you. Amen. Or maybe we're, we're talking with someone. We're like, Lord, how? How are you going to work in their life? They seem so far gone, so far removed. God's not done. God is able. Don't write someone off. God hasn't, and you shouldn't. He says, God has begun something, and he will complete it. And look what he says in verse 6. He says, this is all about, this is moving towards a day, the day of Jesus Christ. What is this day? This historical day. It's the day of Jesus' return. And he mentions it here in verse 6 and again in verse 10. This is an important day to Paul. He's living his life in light of that, that day that's coming. Do we? Verses 7 through 8 then, we see is just filled with expressed affection for the Philippians. We can tell as we read these verses that these, these are his friends. This is personal. Let's read it again together, uh, beginning in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. To feel, he says. It's so much more than just an emotional or, or a sentimentality. That's, that's not what this is. It's this, it isn't just an emotional reaction. It's, it's sympathetic interest. It, it's deep concern for their well-being. That's what he's feeling. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way because I hold you in my heart, he says. The biblical sense of the heart refers to the deepest center of who you are. It's the seat of your affections. It's the seat of your emotions and even your decision-making. You, we could call it central command. Your heart holds you there in the center of my being. He had called them already partners. Now he calls them partakers. Partakers. You're a companion of mine, he says. A partaker of grace, first and foremost. It's what we share together. We're partakers of grace together. And so are we, church. When, when, I, when, I, when Paul speaks of being a partaker of grace, we're talking about the beauty and the generosity and, and, and the, the unmerited favor, uh, the, the free gift that is found in Jesus. That's what we partake. 
That's what we, we share together. That's what he shared with the Philippians. But he also says, listen, you stood beside me through it all. Through my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, there was no other church that stood beside Paul. And even now, as he's imprisoned writing this letter, some think he's in, imprisoned in Rome, uh, some think in Ephesus. Regardless, he's in, he's in prison. And the Philippians, out of concern for, for Paul, send Epaphroditus to care for his needs. And he says, verse 8, I yearn. I yearn for you with all the affection. The word is innards. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. All the intestines, all the bowels. <laughs> I love you with all my guts. That's what he's saying. I love you with all my heart. I love you with everything inside of me. So guys, next time you write a love letter to your special lady, I love you with all my guts. But he's saying, I yearn for you with all, all the affection of Christ Jesus. The message version uh, translates it this way. I, I think I feel as strongly about you as Christ does. These are strong affections. Rooted in a, a camaraderie and a friendship that goes deep. A support that was felt both ways. Being there for each other. It's what I long for and pray would happen here. And, and I see it happening, but I pray it would happen more and more. It's so attractive. We long for it. It can't be forced. I know that. We can't force this kind of affection to happen here. We sure can pray for it, and we can work towards it. It's going to take time. It's going to take shared meals. It's going to take listening. It's going to take time. It has to be worked on because local church St. Pete is not a club and we are not a concert. We are not an event and I'm not doing a TED talk right now. We're a family. We're a community on mission. So what will it require of us to walk in the affection that's expressed here in this letter? It's going to require us becoming more vulnerable opening our lives, sharing that beautiful thing that we all have in common, Christ. God's doing it. I pray he does so more and more. Well, we're learning a lot already just from the few verses we've read. We're for sure learning that the gospel and its work in hearts isn't just a religious experience. It's a life-changing work. And it invites us into a shared life with others, this partnership in the gospel. Because we've experienced this, this grace and this love that is found in Christ. And it's what we share. So what kind of prayer then does someone with this kind of affection and this kind of shared experience with the community, what kind of prayer does he pray for them? Well, it's a life-shaping prayer. And, it, and this life-shaping prayer that he, he moves into, it destroys any notion that faith in Jesus is simply a, a religious experience or that faith in Jesus is meant to be for our private lives only, or for Sundays only, or some kind of peripheral thing that we push out to the edges of our lives and only call upon when the going gets tough. That's not what faith in Jesus is meant to be. It's meant to be extremely personal. And it gets extremely public as well. So what kind of prayer do affections like this produce? 
Let's read verse 9. And it is my prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the kind of prayer affection produces. It's interesting that all the major themes found in this letter grow out of this prayer. So how does Paul pray for a church facing persecution and poverty? How does Paul pray for a church that's facing some disunity, facing some of the same temptations we have before us today, be it sexual sins of all kinds or consumerism or a relativistic mindset towards faith in Jesus? How does he pray for them? He prays that they would have a love that would flourish, a love that would influence everything. It would just spill over into decisions and lifestyle choices. But he's not praying that they would have a love that is a relativistic love like that of our culture. No, he's, he's praying about a love that, that looks more like the love that is found in Christ Jesus. It, this love points to the character of God and, and, and to God's actions that flow from his character. And so this love is found in and defined by Jesus do you remember the night before Jesus was, was murdered, was crucified? What did he do that he set out as an example for his, his followers, his disciples? He put a towel around his waist, he got on his hands and knees, and he washed their feet. And it was that same night that he taught them this. He said, the world will know you're my followers by your love for one another. It's not a relativistic love. It's a self-giving, sacrificial love that he'd go on to display even more boldly the next day when he hung naked on a tree, on a cross. That's the love that Paul is praying would grow and overflow and influence everything. Paul prays for their love to abound more and more. The idea is a superabundance of love. You can't grasp the way you will love your newborn baby until you're holding your newborn baby. I got three kids, and before we had children, we were told just how much joy and love fills your heart when you're holding that child for the first time, and you hear the stories, but you really don't know. You can't experience that until you're there, until you're experiencing it. And, and, and in, that mo- in that moment, there was this newly discovered love. I didn't realize I could have this kind of love for a human being. It's a new depth. And I think as Paul prays for their love to abound more and more, the love Paul prays that would grow in this way is going to be hard to grasp until we really begin to experience it for ourselves. But the more we experience that love, the more we'll see, oh, this is a new depth. This is, this is a love that's meant to touch every area of my life. You know, when you plant a seed in fertile soil, it takes time, but eventually that seed will grow. And depending on the plant that you, you're trying to nurture, it will take shape and, and, and dominate the area according to its type and size. 
Love is meant to dominate our entire lives. And as it grows, as we grow, it's meant to influence us more and more and more. All of a sudden, we find ourselves not okay with unresolved conflict. All of a sudden, we find ourselves convicted of things we were never convicted of before. All of a sudden, we find ourselves unable to ignore the brokenness of our city. All of a sudden, we find ourselves unable to ignore the conflict in our marriage or the need to own up to the wrongs done. Why? Because love has taken root and love begins to grow and overflow in our life. That's why. It starts to shape our decision-making, our relationships. He's saying, I I know love is growing in you, Philippians, but I want it to grow more and more. Look at what love will produce. Paul writes this way for the other, other churches he's caring for. Look with me in Ephesians chapter five. Just one sampling of what love produces in our lives. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So walk in love, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, just as you've been loved and shown love in Christ, so you too walk in love. And what does that look like? Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is a a, a covetous, uh, covetous, that, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, wake up, wake up to who you are and how you're called to live a life of love a life that is shaped by the love of Christ. Verse 10 of Philippians 1. The love that Paul is praying for, it comes with something. It's not hollow. It's not empty. It it comes with some friends. It overflows in knowledge and discernment and wisdom. Oh, that's good. That's so good. It's so helpful. So that, he says, you may approve what is excellent, and discern what is best. In other words, he's saying, this love that I'm praying for that grows and overflows, it's coming with knowledge and discernment so that you can actually give yourself in this life to what really matters, to what really counts. So you can walk in discernment and knowledge. You can approve what is excellent. What happens when we begin to do this? Well, our excuses and compromise 
will be exposed. It will be. Mediocrity that we were walking in, this lukewarmness, all of a sudden it's exposed. Oh, wow. I, I was giving myself to something that, I, and I didn't really even care that I was for a time, but now this, this love is beginning to shape me. This, this love of God found in Christ Jesus, it's, it's given me these new desires. It's overflowing in my life, and it's given me some discernment and some wisdom. And, and now I'm, I'm learning to say no to things that I just never said no to before. I didn't care about before. The Philippians lived in a gray world, a world of gray, and so do we. Issues were blurred and distorted for them. They still are for us. We have so many choices coming at us every day that feel it's really hard to discern right from wrong. I mean, you live in the same world I do? And so he, he's saying, and so be pure. He wants them to be pure. This is transparent, not causing anyone to stumble. And blameless. This is sincere, without mixed motives, on the day of Christ. This isn't about sinless perfection, church. This is about living a life that honors Jesus here and now. Living each day, making decisions in light of the day of Christ Jesus. How do you make decisions? How are you making decisions day in and day out, from the big ones to the small ones to uh, just the decisions that come at you? How are you making them? Does the story of Jesus shape your story? Is it shaping your life more and more? Is the love of God in Christ Jesus helping you to discern how to treat her? How to respond to him? How to answer in that workplace, how to treat your child, how to live before marriage. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus that has this life-shaping effect on us. It should. Moral discernment, the ability to discern right from wrong. In other words, living in a way that honors Jesus. These choices that we make daily that spring from a heart that's been transformed by the love of Christ. Think of that. Not motivated by guilt or condemnation, but because we love Jesus, we're living this way. Because we love Jesus, we've decided not to respond a particular way. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is right living. It comes through Jesus. It's a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God the Spirit in our lives. When you are a follower of Jesus, you have uh, the full presence of God the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, and and now you're able to walk in, in the power of the Holy Spirit for witness as you proclaim the truth of Jesus, but also um, to live a life that reflects that you belong to Jesus. And so this, this is uh, dependency on the Spirit, but as we do that, what happens? The fruit of his presence is seen in our life through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Now those are just some uh, of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And he says here, uh, he's praying that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of right living that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's all to the glory of God. Paul wants his friends to live lives that reflect their faith in Jesus. That's what he's getting at. 
He wants them to live lives that reflect the overflowing love of God, that reflect the character of God. Every area. Behavior that, re- that re- is the result of God's faithfulness. Remember, he began a good work in you. He'll continue that work. He'll carry it to its completion. Behavior that is rooted in our new identity. Saints. If we're not the set-apart people of God living lives of holiness, well, we got nothing to say. We got nothing to say. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about living lives that are shaped by the love of Christ, making decisions that are rooted in who we are and what in Christ Jesus and what Christ has accomplished for us and the strength that then he supplies for us to behave in a way that honors him. Lives that put on the display his love and grace, the forgiveness and cleansing of sin that we've received, the new status that has come to us through Christ. All of this to the praise and glory of God the Father. As we end, just some questions for us. What would happen if we prayed this way for, for our lives individually, but also for the church corporately? What would happen if we, we prayed like this? I mean, what insight would come? What discouragement, or I'm sorry, what, what discernment would come our way? What conviction would fill our hearts? What protection and provision? What reconciliation and restoration? What healing and deliverance would come our way? I'm believing for it for us as a church community. As we pray this prayer, that will be the fruit. We live in a very gray world. It's blurry, hard to discern right and wrong. Decisions are coming at us every day. As we grow and overflow in love, It brings with it the discernment and the wisdom we need to live lives to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray this prayer now for us. We want to adopt it as our own. Dear Lord, we pray that you would help our love to grow more and more and overflow. We pray that you would help our love to abound with a super abundance, with knowledge and all discernment, so that we might be able to approve what is excellent, honoring to you. And so be pure and blameless for that day of Christ. That we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of you, God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.